Section number seven of Four and Twenty Fairy Tales. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Peter Darby. VoiceOverPeteDarby.com. Perfect Love, Part One by the Comtesse de Morin. Translated by James Planchet. Part One. In one of those agreeable countries subject to the empire of the fairies, reigned the redoubtable Dinamo. She was learned in her art, cruel in her deeds, and proud of the honour of being descended from the celebrated Calypso, whose charms had the glory and the power, by detaining the famous Ulysses, to triumph over the prudence of the conquerors of Troy. She was tall, fierce-looking, and her haughty spirit had with much difficulty been subjected to the rigid laws of Hymen. Love had never been able to reach her heart, but the idea of uniting a flourishing kingdom to that of which she was queen, and another which she had usurped, had induced her to marry an old monarch who was one of her neighbours. He died a few years after his marriage, and left the queen with one daughter named Azir. She was exceedingly ugly, but did not appear so in the eyes of Dinamo, who thought her charming, perhaps because she was the very image of herself. She was the heiress also to three kingdoms, a circumstance which softened down many defects, and her hand was sought in marriage by all the most powerful princes of the adjacent provinces. Their eagerness, joined to the blind affection of Dinamo, rendered her vanity insupportable. She was ardently besought. She must, therefore, be worthy of such solicitation. It was thus that the fairy and the princess reasoned in their minds, and enjoyed the pleasure of deceiving themselves. Meanwhile, Danamo thought only of rendering the happiness of the princess as perfect as she considered was her due, and, with this object, brought up in her palace a young prince, the son of her brother. His name was Pinsain-Parcinet. He had a noble bearing, a graceful figure, a profusion of beautiful fair hair. Love might have been jealous of his power, for that deity had never, amongst his golden-pointed arrows, any so certain to triumph irresistibly over hearts as the fine eyes of Pinsain-Parcinet. He could do everything well that he chose to undertake, danced and sang to perfection, and bore off all the prizes in the tournament whenever he took the trouble to contend for them. This young prince was the delight of the court, and Dinamo, who had her motives for it, made no objection to the homage and admiration which he received. The king, who was the father of Parsonet, was the fairy's brother. She declared war against him without even seeking for a reason. The king fought valiantly at the head of his troops, but what could any army effect against the power of so skilful a fair as Dinamo? She allowed the victory to remain in doubt only long enough for her unfortunate brother to fall in the combat. As soon as he was dead, she dispersed all her enemies with one stroke of her wand, and made herself mistress of the kingdom. Pinsain Parsinet was at that time still in his cradle. They brought him to Dinamo. It would have been in vain to attempt hiding him from a fairy. He already displayed those seductive graces which win the heart. Dinamo caressed him, 
and a few days afterwards took him with her to her own dominions. The prince had attained the age of eighteen when the fairy, desirous at length of executing the designs which she had so many years contemplated, resolved to marry Parsin Parsinet to the princess, her daughter. She never for a moment doubted the infinite delight which that young prince, born to a throne, and condemned by misfortune to remain a subject, would feel at becoming in one day the sovereign of three kingdoms. She sent for the princess, and revealed to her the choice she had made of her husband for her. The princess listened to this disclosure with an emotion which caused the fairy to believe that this resolution in favour of Parsin Parsinet was not agreeable to her daughter. "'I see clearly,' she said to her, as she perceived her agitation increasing, "'that thou hast much more ambition, and wouldst unite with thine own empire that one of those kings who have so often proposed for thee. But where is the king whom Parsin Parsinet cannot conquer?' In courage he surpasses them all. The subjects of so perfect a prince might one day rebel in his favour. In giving thee to him, I secure to thee the possession of his kingdom. As to his person, it is unnecessary to speak. Thou knowest that the proudest beauties have not been able to resist his charms. The princess— suddenly flinging herself at the feet of the fairy, interrupted her discourse, and confessed to her that her heart had not been able to defy the young victor, famous for so many conquests. "'But,' she added, blushing, "'I have given a thousand proofs of my affection to the insensible Parsin Parsinet, and he has received them with a coldness which distracts me.' "'Tis because he dares not raise his thoughts so high as thee,' replied the haughty fairy. He fears, no doubt, to offend me, and I appreciate his respect. This flattering idea was too agreeable to the inclination and the vanity of the princess for her not to be persuaded of its truth. The fairy ended by sending for Parsin Parsinet. He came and found her in a magnificent cabinet, where she awaited him with the princess, her daughter. "'Call all thy courage to thy assistance,' said she to him as soon as he appeared, "'not to support affliction, but to prevent being overcome by thy good fortune. "'Thou art called to a throne, Parsin Parsinet, "'and to crown thy happiness thou wilt mount that throne by espousing my daughter.' "'I, madam!' exclaimed the young prince, with an astonishment, "'in which it was easy to perceive that joy had no share. "'I espouse the princess?' continued he, retreating a few paces. <laughs> what deity is meddling with my fate? Why does he not leave the care of it to the only one from whom I implore assistance? These words were uttered by the prince with a vehemence in which his heart took too much part to allow it to be controlled by his prudence. The fairy imagined that the unhoped-for happiness had driven Parsin Parsinet out of his wits. But the princess loved him, and love sometimes renders lovers more keen-sighted than even wisdom. "'From what deity, Parsin Parsinet,' said she to him with emotion, "'do you implore assistance so fondly? "'I feel too deeply that I have no share in the prayers you address to him.' The young prince, who had had time to recover from his first surprise, and who was conscious of the imprudence he had committed, summoned his brain to the assistance of his heart. 
He answered the princess with more gallantry than she had hoped for, and thanked the fairy with an air of dignity that sufficiently proved him to be worthy not only of the empire that was afforded him, but of that of the whole world. Danamo and her proud daughter were satisfied with his expressions, and they settled everything before they left the apartment, the fairy deferring the wedding day a short time, only to give opportunity to all her court to prepare for this grand solemnity. The news of the marriage of Balsan, Parsinet, and Azir was spread throughout the palace the moment they had quitted the Queen's cabinet. Crowds came to congratulate the prince— However unamiable the princess, it was to high fortune she conducted him. Parsin Parsinet received all these honours with an air of indifference, which surprised his new subjects the more, for that they detected beneath it extreme affliction and anxiety. He was compelled, however, to endure for the rest of the day the eager homage of the whole court, and the ceaseless demonstrations of affection lavished upon him by Azir. What a situation for a young prince, a prey to the keenest anguish. Night seemed to him to have delayed its return a thousand times longer than usual. The impatient Parsin Parsinet prayed for its arrival. It came at length. He quitted precipitately the place in which he had suffered so much. He retired to his own apartments, and having dismissed his attendants, opened a door, which led into the palace gardens— and hurried through them, followed only by a young slave. A beautiful, but not very extensive, river ran at the end of the gardens, and separated from the magnificent palace of the fairy a little chateau, flanked by four towers, and surrounded by a tolerably deep moat, which was filled by the river aforesaid. It was to this fatal spot that the vows and sighs of Pantsin Parsinet were incessantly wafted. What a miracle was confined in it! Danamo had the treasure carefully guarded within it. It was a young princess, the daughter of her sister, who, dying, had confided to her the charge of the fairy. Her beauty, worthy the admiration of the universe, appeared too dangerous to Danamo to allow her to be seen by the side of Azir. Permission was occasionally accorded to the charming Irolite, so was she named, to come to the palace and visit the fairy and the princess her daughter, but she had never been allowed to appear in public. Her dawning beauties were unknown to the world, but there was one who was not ignorant of them. They had met the eyes of Palsan Palsinet one day at the apartment of the princess Azir, and he had adored Yolite from the moment that he had seen her. Their near relationship afforded no privilege to that young prince. From the time Yolite ceased to be an infant, the pitiless Danamo suffered no one to behold her. Nevertheless, Parsin Parsinet burned with a flame as ardent as such charms as Yolite could not fail to kindle. She was just fourteen. Her beauty was perfect. Her hair was of a charming colour. Without being decidedly dark or fair, her complexion had all the freshness of spring. Her mouth was lovely, her teeth admirable, her smile fascinating. She had large hazel eyes, sparkling and tender, and her glances appeared to say a thousand things which her young heart was ignorant of. 
She had been brought up in complete solitude. Near as was the palace of the fairy to the chateau in which she dwelt, she saw no more persons than she might have seen in the midst of deserts. Dinamo's orders to this effect were strictly followed. The lovely Irolite passed her days amongst the women appointed to attend her. They were few in number, but little as were the advantages to be gained in so solitary and circumscribed a court, fame, which feared not at Dinamo, published such wonders of this young princess, that ladies of the highest rank were eager to share the seclusion of the youthful Irolite. Her appearance confirmed all that fame had reported. They were always finding some new charm to admire in her. A governess, of great intelligence and prudence, formerly attached to the princess who was the mother of Irolite, had been allowed to remain with her, and frequently bewailed the rigorous conduct of Dinamo towards her young mistress. Her name was Mana. Her desire to restore the princess to the liberty she was entitled to enjoy, and the position she was born to occupy, had induced her to favour the love of Parcin Parcinet. It was now three years since he had contrived to introduce himself one evening into the chateau in the dress of a slave. He found Irolite in the garden, and declared his passion for her. She was then but a charming child. She loved Parcin Parcinet as if he had been her brother, and could not then comprehend the existence of any warmer attachment. Mana, who was rarely absent from the side of Irolite, surprised the young prince in the garden. He avowed to her his love for the princess, and the determination he had formed to perish, or restore her one day to liberty, and then to seek by personal appeal to his former subjects a glorious means of revenging himself upon Dinamo, and placing Irolite upon the throne. The noble qualities which were daily developed in the nature of Parsin Parsinet might have rendered probable his success in still more difficult undertakings, and it was also the only hope of rescue which offered itself to Irolite. Mana allowed him to visit the chateau occasionally after nightfall. He saw Irolite only in her presence, but he spoke to her of his love, and never ceased endeavouring by tender words and devoted attentions to inspire her with a passion as ardent as his own. For three years Palsan Palsinet had been occupied solely with this passion. Nearly every night he visited the chateau of his princess, and all his days he passed in thinking of her. We left him on his road through Dinamo's gardens, followed by a slave, and absorbed in the despair to which the determination of the fairy had reduced him. He reached the river's bank, a little gilded boat moored to the shore, in which Aziel sometimes enjoyed an excursion on the water, enabled the enamoured prince to cross the stream. The slave rowed him over, and as soon as Balsan Parsinet had ascended the silken ladder which was thrown to him from a little terrace that extended along the entire front of the chateau, the faithful servant rowed the boat back to its mooring place, and remained with it there, until a signal was made to him by his master. This was the waving, for a few minutes, of a lighted flambeau on the terrace. This evening the prince took his usual route. The silken ladder was thrown to him, and he reached without any obstacle the apartment of the youthful Irolite. He found her stretched on a couch and bathed in tears. How beautiful did she appear to him in her affliction! Her charms had never before affected the young prince so deeply. "'What is the matter, my princess?' asked he, flinging himself on his knees before the couch on which she lay. "'What can have caused these precious tears to flow? Alas!' he continued, sighing. "'Have I still more misfortunes to learn here? 
The young lovers mingled their tears and sighs, and were forced to give full vent to their sorrow before they could find words to declare its cause. At length the young prince entreated Irolite to tell him what new severity the fairy had treated her with. "'She would compel you to marry Azir,' replied the beautiful Irolite, blushing. "'Which of all her cruelties could cause me so much agony?' "'Oh, my dear princess!' exclaimed the prince. "'You fear I shall marry Azir? My lot is a thousand times more happy than I could have imagined it!' "'Can you exult in your destiny?' sadly rejoined the princess, "'when it threatens to separate us. I cannot express to you the tortures that I suffer from this fear.' Oh, parson, parson, there you were right. The love I bear to you is far different from that I should feel for a brother. The enamoured prince blessed fortune for her severities. Never before had the young heart of Irolite appeared to him truly touched by love, and now he could no longer doubt having inspired her with a passion as tender as his own. This unlooked-for happiness renewed all his hopes. No, he exclaimed with rapture, I no longer despair of overcoming our difficulties, since I am convinced of your affection. Let us fly, my princess, let us escape from the fury of Dinamo and her hateful daughter, let us seek a home more favourable to the indulgence of that love in which alone consists our happiness. How, rejoined the young princess with astonishment, depart with you, and what would all the kingdom say of my flight? "'Away with such idle fears, beautiful Irolite!' interrupted the impatient Parsin Parsinet. "'Everything urges us to quit this spot. Let us hasten!' "'But whither?' asked the prudent Mana, who had been present during the entire interview, and who, less preoccupied than these young lovers, foresaw all the difficulties in the way of their flight. "'I have plans which I will lay before you,' answered Parsin Parsinet. But how did you become so soon acquainted here with the news of the fairy's court? One of my relatives, replied Mana, wrote to me the instant that the rumour was circulated through the palace, and I thought it my duty to inform the princess. What have I not suffered since that moment? said the lovely Irolite. No, Parsin Parsinet, I cannot live without you. The young prince, in a transport of love, and enchanted by these words, imprinted on the beautiful hand of Irolite a passionate and tender kiss, which had all the charms of a first and precious favour. The day began to dawn, and warned Parsinet too soon that it was time for him to retire. He promised the princess he would return the following night to reveal his plans for their escape. He found his faithful slave in waiting with the boat, and returned to his apartments. He was enraptured with the delight of being beloved by the fair Irolite, and agitated by the obstacles which he clearly perceived would have to be surmounted. Sleep could neither calm his anxiety, nor make him for one moment forget his happiness. The morning sun had scarcely lighted his chamber when a dwarf presented him with a magnificent scarf from the Princess Azir, who, in a note more tender than Pansan Parsinet would have desired, entreated him to wear it constantly from that moment. He returned an answer, which it embarrassed him much to compose, but Irolite was to be rescued, and what constraint would he not have himself endured to restore her to liberty? He had no sooner dismissed the dwarf than a giant arrived to present him, from Danamo, with a sabre of extraordinary beauty. The hilt was formed by a single stone, more brilliant than a diamond, 
and which emitted so dazzling a lustre that it would light the way by night. Upon its blade were engraven these words, For the hand of a conqueror. Parsin Parsinet was pleased with this present. He went to thank the fairy for it, and entered her apartment wearing the marvellous sabre she had sent him, and the beautiful scarf he had received from Azir. The assurance of Irolide's affection for him had relieved him from all anxiety, and filled his bosom with that gentle and perfect happiness which is born of mutual love. An air of joy was apparent in all his actions. Azir attributed it to the effect of her own charms, and the fairy to satisfied ambition. The day passed in entertainments, which could not diminish the insupportable length of it to Paz and Pazinet. In the evening they walked in the palace gardens, and were rowed on that very river with which the prince was so well acquainted. His heart beat quickly as he stepped into that little boat. What a difference between the pleasure to which it was accustomed to bear him, and the dreary dullness of his present position! Parsin Parsinet could not help casting frequent glances toward the dwelling of the charming Eolite. She did not make her appearance upon the terrace of the chateau, for there was an express order that she was not to be permitted to leave her chamber whenever the fairy Orazia was on the water. The latter, who narrowly watched all the prince's actions, observed that he often looked in that direction. "'What are you gazing at, prince?' said she. "'Amidst all the honours that surround you, is the prison of Irolite deserving so much attention?' "'Yes, madam,' replied the prince, very imprudently. "'I feel for those who have not drawn on themselves by their own misconduct the misfortunes they endure.' "'You are too compassionate,' replied Azir contemptuously. But to relieve your anxiety, added she, lowering her voice, I can inform you that Eolite will not long continue a prisoner. And what is to become of her, then? hastily inquired the young prince. The queen will marry her in a few days to Prince Ormond, answered Azir. He is, as you know, a kinsman of ours, and agreeable to the queen's intentions. The day after the nuptials he will conduct Eolite to one of his fortresses, from whence she will never return to the court. "'How!' exclaimed Parsin Parsinet, with extraordinary emotion, "'will the Queen bestow that beautiful princess on so frightful a prince, "'and whose vices exceed even his ugliness? "'What cruelty!' "'The latter word escaped his lips despite himself, "'but he could no longer be false to his courage and his heart.' "'Methinks it is not for you, Parsin Parsinet,' retorted Azir haughtily, to complain of the cruelties of Dinamo. This conversation would no doubt have been carried too far for the young prince, whose safety lay in dissimulation. When, fortunately for Parsin Parsinet, some of the ladies in waiting on Azir approached her, and a moment afterwards the fairy having appeared on the bank of the river, Azir signified her desire to rejoin her. On landing, Parsin Parsinet pretended indisposition in order to obtain least the liberty of lamenting alone his new misfortunes. The fairy, and more particularly Azir, testified great anxiety respecting his illness. He returned to his own apartments, 
There he indulged in a thousand complaints against destiny for the ills it threatened to inflict on the charming Irolite, abandoned himself to all his grief and all his passion, and, beginning at length to seek consolation for suffering so agonising to a faithful lover, wrote a letter full of the most moving phrases that his affection could dictate to one of his aunts, who was a fairy as well as Dinamo but who found as much pleasure in befriending the unfortunate as Duramo did in making them miserable. Her name was Favorable. The prince explained to her the cruel situation to which love and fate had reduced him, and not being able to absent himself from the court of Dinamo without betraying the design he had formed, he sent his faithful slave with the letter to Favorable. When every one had retired to rest, he left his apartment as usual, crossed the gardens alone, and, stepping into the little boat, took up one of the oars, without knowing whether or not he could manage to use it. But what can at love teach his votaries? He can instruct them in much more difficult matters. He enabled Parsen Parsinet to row with as much skill and rapidity as the most expert waterman. He entered the chateau, and was much surprised to find no one but the prudent Mana, weeping bitterly in the princess's chamber. "'What affects you, Mana?' asked the prince, eagerly. "'And where is my dear Irolite?' "'Alas, my lord,' replied Mana, "'she is no longer here. A troop of the queen's guards, and some women in whom she apparently confides, removed the princess from the castle about three or four hours ago.' Parsant Parsinet heard not the last of these sad words. He sunk insensible on the ground the instant he learned the departure of the princess. Mana, with great difficulty, restored him to consciousness. He recovered from his swoon only to give way to a sudden paroxysm of fury. He drew a small dagger from his girdle, and had pierced his heart, if the prudent Mana, dragging back his arm as best she could, and falling at the same time on her knees, had not exclaimed, "'How, my lord, would you abandon Irolite?' Live to save her from the wrath of Dinamo! Alas, without you, how will she find protection from the fairy's cruelty? These words suspended for a moment the despair of the wretched prince. Alas, replied he, shedding tears which all his courage could not restrain, whither have they borne my princess? Yes, mother, I will live to enjoy at least the sad satisfaction of dying in her defence, and in avenging her on her enemies. After these words, Mana conjured him to quit the fatal building, to avoid fresh misfortunes. "'Hasten, Prince,' said she to him. "'How know we that the fairy has not here some spy ready to acquaint her with everything that passes within these walls? Be careful of a life so dear to the princess whom you adore. I will let you know all that I can contrive to learn respecting her.' The Prince departed after this promise, and regained his chamber oppressed with all the grief which so tender and so luckless a passion could inspire. He passed the night on a couch on which he had thrown himself on entering the room. Daybreak surprised him there, and the morning was advanced some hours, when he heard a noise at his chamber door. He ran to it with the eager impatience which we feel when we await tidings in which the heart is deeply interested. He found his people conducting to him a man, who desired to speak with him instantly. He recognised the messenger as one of Mana's relations, who placed in the hand of Parsen Parsenet a letter, which he took with him into his cabinet to read, in order to conceal the emotion its receipt excited in him. 
He opened it hastily, having observed it was in Mana's handwriting, and found these words. Mana, to the greatest prince in the world. Be comforted, my lord. Our princess is in safety, if such an expression be allowable, so long as she is subjected to the power of her enemy. She requested Dinamo to permit my attendance on her, and the fairy consented that I should rejoin her. She is confined in the palace. Yesterday evening, the queen caused her to be brought into her cabinet, ordered her to look upon Prince Ormond as one who would be in a few days her husband, and presented to her that prince so unworthy of being your rival. The princess was so distressed that she could answer the queen only by tears. They have not yet ceased to flow. It is for you, my lord, to find, if possible, some means of escape from the impending calamity. At the foot of the letter were the following lines, written with a trembling hand, and some of the words being nearly effaced. How I pity you, my dear prince! Your sufferings are more terrible to me than my own. I spare your feelings the recital of what I have endured since yesterday. Why was I born to disturb your peace? Alas! Had you never known me! Perhaps you might have been happy. What mingled emotions of joy and grief agitated the heart of the young prince in reading this postscript? What kisses did he not imprint upon this precious token of love of the divine Irolite? He was so excited that it was with the greatest difficulty in the world that he succeeded in writing a coherent answer. He thanked the prudent Mana. He informed the princess of the assistance he expected from the fairy favorable, and what did he not say to her of his grief or his love? He then took the letter to Mana's kinsman, and presented him with a clasp set with jewels of inestimable beauty and value as an earnest of the reward he had deserved for the pleasure he had given him. Mana's kinsman had scarcely departed when the queen and Princess Azir sent to inquire how the prince had passed the night. It was easily seen by his countenance that he was not well. He was entreated to return to his bed, and as he felt he should be under less restraint there than in the company of the fairy, he consented to do so. After dinner the queen came to see him, and spoke to him of the marriage of Hérolite and Prince Ormond, as of a matter she had decided upon. Parsin Parsinet, who had at length made up his mind to control himself, so as not to awaken suspicions which might frustrate his designs, pretended to approve of the fairy's intentions, and only requested her to await his perfect recovery, as it was his wish to be present to the festivities which would take place on the occasion of these grand nuptials. The fairy and Azir, who were in despair about his illness, promised him everything he desired, and Palsan Palsinet thus retarded for some days at least the threatened marriage of Irolite. His conversation with Azir, when on the water with her, had hastened the approach of that misfortune to the beautiful princess he loved so tenderly. Azir had related to the queen the words of Palsan Palsinet, and the pity he had expressed for Irolite. The queen, who never paused in the execution of what she had determined on, sent that very evening for Irolite, and decided in conjunction with Azir that the marriage of the former should immediately take place. 
and that her departure should be expedited before Parsin Parsinet was established in the higher authority his match with Ozir would invest him with. Before ten days had expired, however, the prince's faithful slave returned from his mission. With what delight did the prince discover in the latter Ferrabla had written to him the proofs of her compassion of her friendship, for him and for Irolite. She sent him a ring made of four separate metals, gold, silver, brass, and iron. This ring had the power to save him four times from the persecution of the cruel Danamo, and Favrable assured the prince that the fairy would not order him to be pursued more often than that ring was able to protect him. These good tidings restored the prince to health, and he sent with all speed for Mana's kinsman. He entrusted him with a letter for Irolite, informing her of the success they might hope for. There was no time to be lost. The Queen had determined the wedding of Irolite should take place in three days. That evening there was to be a ball given by the Princess Azir. Irolite was to be present. Parsin Parsinet could not endure the idea of appearing en négligé, as his recent illness might have permitted him. He dressed himself in the most magnificent style and looked more brilliant than the sun. He dared not at first speak to the fair Irolite, but what did not their eyes discourse when occasionally they ventured a glance at each other? Irolite was in the most beautiful costume in the world. The fairy had presented her with some marvellous jewels, and as she had only four days to remain in the palace, Danamo had resolved, during that short period, to treat her with all due honour. Her beauty, which had hitherto been unadorned in such splendour, appeared wonderful to the whole court, and above all to the enamoured Parsin Parsinet. He even imagined he could read in some joyous flashes of her bright eyes an acknowledgment that she had received his letter. Prince Ormond addressed Irolite frequently, but he was so ill-looking, notwithstanding the golden jewels with which he was burdened, that he was not a rival worth the jealousy of the young prince. The ball was nearly over, when Parsin Parsinet, carried away by his love, wished with intense ardour for an opportunity to speak for one moment to his princess. "'Cruel queen! And thou also, hateful Azir!' he mentally exclaimed. "'Will ye still longer deprive me of the delightful pleasure of repeating a thousand times to the beautiful Irolite that I adore her?' jealous witness of my happiness. Why do you not quit this spot? Love can only triumph in your absence. Scarcely had Bansin Parsene formed this witch, than the fairy, feeling rather faint, called to Azir, and passed with her into an adjoining apartment, followed by Ormond. Bansin Parsene had on his finger the ring, which the fairy Favorable had sent him and which had the power to rescue him four times from the persecutions of Danamo. He should have reserved such certain help for the most pressing necessity. But when did violent love obey the dictates of prudence? The young prince was convinced by the sudden departure of the fairy and Azir that the ring had begun to favour his love. He flew to the fair Eolite, he spoke to her of his affection in terms more ardent than eloquent. He felt that he had perhaps invoked the spell of Favorable too thoughtlessly. 
Could he regret an imprudence which obtained for him the sweet gratification of speaking to his dear Irolite? They agreed as to the place and hour at which the next day they would meet to fly from their painful bondage. The fairy and his ear, after some time, returned to the ballroom. Pals and Parsinet separated with great regret from Irolite. He looked at the fatal ring, and perceived that the iron had mixed with the other metals, and was no longer distinguishable. He therefore saw too clearly that he had only three more wishes to make. He resolved to render them more truly serviceable to the princess than the first had been. He confided the secret of his flight to no one but his faithful slave, and passed the rest of that night in making all the necessary preparations. The next morning he calmly presented himself to the queen, and appeared even in better spirits than usual. He jested with Prince Ormond on his marriage, and conducted himself in such a manner as to lull all suspicions, had any existed, as to his intentions. Two hours after midnight he repaired to the fairy's park. He found there his faithful slave, who, in obedience to his master's orders, had brought thither four of his horses. The prince was not kept long waiting. The lovely Irolite appeared, walking with faltering steps, and leaning upon Mana. The young princess felt some pain in taking this course. It had needed all the cruelties of Donamo, and all the bad qualities of Ormond, to induce her to do so. Love alone had not sufficed to persuade her. End of section 7 Recording by Peter Darby Voiceoverpeterdarby.com